0: About 10 years ago, uh, David Plotz was the editor of Slate Magazine and decided to write a series of blog posts about his uh, daily readings through the Old Testament scriptures. And it produced like a hundred entries, many of which are just riveting. Uh, And as he read throughout, and though we appreciated how many literary references come from the Old Testament, in the end, he ultimately concluded that he didn't want anything to do with the God of the Bible at all. This is what he says. He says, I began the Bible as a hopeful but indifferent agnostic. I wished for a God, but I didn't really care. I leave the Bible as a hopeless, angry agnostic. I'm brokenhearted about God. After reading about the genocides, the plagues, the murders, the mass enslavements, the ruthless vengeance for minor sins or none at all, and all that smiting, every bit of it directly performed, authorized, or approved by God. I can only include that the God of the Hebrew Bible, if he exists, was awful, cruel, and capricious. He gives us moments of beauty, such sublime beauty and grace, but taken as a whole, he is no God I want to obey, and no God that I can love. So we come to this major and rather large section of the book of Exodus that contained the plagues and Before we dive in, I think it's important for us to realize that stories like this from the Old Testament are deeply offensive to the world that we are called to love for the sake of the gospel. And for that reason, a lot of people have really struggled to understand what could these stories possibly have to do with me of this God's violent wrath against this ancient pagan king. And of course, there's been attempts to explain. I mean, I think, first of all, you get the people that want to make what I would call a literal connection. Uh, that is, you know, uh, every earthquake or flood or natural disaster, maybe an illness happens, is specific evidence of God's judgment upon you. But that's a, little bit, uh, that's a little bit dangerous, I think, of way of thinking. I had a good friend of mine who said, you want to be very careful about interpreting God's providence too specifically in your life, because... Only he alone understands his own infinite purposes for why things happen. Other people got to go the morality route on these. In other words, here you have good Moses versus evil Pharaoh. And the story of the plagues is, you know, be like Moses and don't be like Pharaoh. But I don't know if that necessarily works very well because it seems like an awfully dramatic (laughs) display just to tell a morality tale here. It also fails to recognize that there's lots of uh, dirt that gets spilled on Moses as well to show that he's not that quite, not that, quite that exemplary. But this semester we're going through the book of Exodus and we're asking ourselves this question, what does it mean to be the people of God? And today we find out that God brandishes his, his his majestic power in order not just to defeat uh, a global superpower at that time but also to begin this process of purging his people from lifestyle patterns that they have inevitably picked up from 400 years of slavery. In other words, there is a bona fide exorcism that God is putting on of the evil spirits that have infected the Jewish people's collective consciences since they've been enslaved. And so therefore, the, slaves, the, the, the plagues, I would suggest, show us three different things. They show a sovereignty for God, hardening for Pharaoh, and exorcism for Israel. And those are my three points this morning. Let's dive into this. So sovereignty for God. You know, most uh, commentators agree that the opening confrontation that Moses has with Pharaoh and this whole snake miracle thing that goes on is actually a micro version for the rest of the ten plagues. All of the basic themes are contained right there. So what is the meaning? Well, you'll find that ancient Eastern scholars will tell you that for an Egyptian culture, a snake was a symbol of power. You might have seen pictures of uh, uh, ancient Egyptian headdresses that have the sort of uh, uh, python right, or, or the, the uh, cobra on the front of the uh, headdress. What's the point? Well, the point is is that Aaron turns his staff into a snake in order to show that he's making a direct challenge. To Pharaoh's assumed sovereignty. In other words, Yahweh is laying down the gauntlet and saying, Pharaoh, I want to challenge what you think you run your world as. And notice that all the counter uh, sort of challenge by the Egyptians when they turn their rods into snakes as well are met by Aaron's snake swallowing their snakes. Uh, a few chapters later, <clears throat> when we find ourselves at the Red Sea, when the water collapses in and drowns all the Egyptians, we'll come to that in a few weeks. It says that they were swallowed by the whole army. That's no mistake there. Because what we see here in these snakes is prefiguring everything that God is about to do and bringing judgment to these captors. But look, what I want you to notice is, is like all of the plagues to follow, when Aaron's rod turns into a snake, it is what we might call a manipulation of the, of the natural order of things. That is, you know, At this point, Egyptian deities were inhabiting almost every single space of these oppressed people's lives. They were everywhere. There were gods for this. There were gods for that. Almost every aspect of nature was occupied by some kind of pagan deity. So the plagues to follow are God's way of waging a battle with Pharaoh to say, actually, these gods that you've multiplied over all of creation... They actually submit to me. I am the one who is Lord over all those. And I'm going to show you by undoing the natural created order of things. One commentator put it this way. He says, the plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans whereas the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings. Look y'all, this is a huge principle, because it's if God is demonstrating to Pharaoh, I am the one who is sovereign over how creation works. And the plagues are God's way of saying to Pharaoh, because of your rebellion, because of your rebellion against me, the very world that you think is run by your gods and is going to bring blessing to you is actually under my sovereign control. In other words, these displays of power in these plagues are not like um, arbitrary kind of naked displays of power, like, watch this. It's God saying, no, no, I'm saying something to this culture about their emptiness, which is what? What he's saying to this culture is, when you disobey God, you've not just broken an arbitrary rule, but because he's the Lord over creation, you're going to unleash the forces of chaos in your own life, because he is the Lord of all. When you disobey me, God says, you violate the very fabric of your own being, and therefore the whole world. In other words, there's disintegration in all of life. Like I really hope you can see this by now, because this was, a, this was a big turning point for me in thinking about sin in general. Because I suddenly realized that when God talks about obedience in the Bible as a blessing, It's as if the corollary he means is disobedience is dysfunction and chaos. You know, the the first application I thought of had to do with our children and child rearing in general. You know, The bulk of what the Bible gives us about raising children really can be summed up in in a shockingly narrow amount of verses in the Bible. There's not a ton. But you do get things like, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There it is. But how often do we enter the child-rearing task (laughs) with so much fear that we inevitably place like all of our hopes for happy lives on the choices that our children make? (laughs) You know, for years I've watched college students crumble under the weight of their parents' expectations for their lives. It's very easy oftentimes as a child to feel like I'm being treated as if I'm an object, something to be manipulated, and not a subject Something to be known and learned about and discussed. But here's what we rarely acknowledge. Living in that fear is disobedience to God. And again, that fear shouldn't just be the the sort of uh, fear of what God will do if I disobey. But it ought to be some fear of actually working against my relationships with my children if I do. It's that fear. And the truth is, it actually works for almost every human relationship. And one of the things that God demands us to do in our relationship is to forgive each other. And you can make a choice to say, well, you know, for the people that deserve it, I'll forgive them. You can say that, but God says, watch what happens to your relationships when you refuse. What happens? They begin to disintegrate. They fall to pieces. They begin to erode. In other words, his law is good for us. In other words, it has a physical effects of being almost uncreated. What's the point? The point is, is that the plague stories show us that obedience to God is natural. The law of God is medicine to, to, to us. I always illustrate it with this uh, idea of a block of wood. If you'll grab a block of wood from a, from a workman's uh, studio or something, and you decide to sort of move your hand along with the grain of the wood, you can experience everything that the wood has, its texture, its feel, everything else. But if you turn that same block around and go against the grain... You're going to splinter up your life, won't you? So here's the question. What if life has a grain (laughs) and it's determined by what God says helps us to flourish? What if God's saying, it's only in my presence that you can be truly alive? And it's not until we see the breakdown of that where we begin to understand it. His lordship is what keeps us from destroying ourselves. So the first thing we see in the plagues is God is establishing his sovereignty over all creation. But secondly, we see that there's also a hardening that takes place for Pharaoh. Look, chapter 7, verse 3 freaks a lot of people out the first time they read it. Because God says, look, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And look, this is not the only time that he says it either. Actually, if you look at it very carefully, in the first five of the plagues that go down it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But in the last five of the plagues, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now look again, for modern readers, this is appalling. Uh, Not the least of which is for David Plot's blogging project. Listen to what he says about this little section of the Bible. He says the key question is, why does God prolong the Egyptian suffering? Why would God keep hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can inflict yet another monstrous plague? Well, God tells us why. Listen carefully, quotes. For I have hardened his heart in order that I might display my signs among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am the Lord. What an appalling reason. God's causing the plagues so that we can tell stories about the plagues. He's torturing Egyptians so that we'll worship him. What kind of insecure and cruel God murders murders firstborn children so that his followers will obey him and tell stories about him? Yes, Pharaoh is, a, Pharaoh is a monster and the Egyptians are brutal taskmasters. They deserve to be punished. But what's upsetting is that God takes delight in the plagues. He even performs the last and worst plague, the slave, uh, slaying of a firstborn son himself. He wants the plagues to continue and get worse and worse so that we'll tell stories about them. And lo and behold, 4,000 years later, that's exactly what we do in every Passover. Plot's is Jewish. says, not until this moment did I realize that the Seder never notices that God causes the suffering simply to glorify himself. Listen to this question. Who has an explanation for God's behavior? Oof. Look, one of the things that I've tried to stress to you is that when God creates a people, he does so that we can be a blessing for the Gentiles, for the people that are not in this room. And that means that we have to take that question seriously. We have to take this question seriously and say, who does have an explanation for God's behavior? Well, I'd like to take a stab at that. Let me offer two simple thoughts at responding to Plotz's argument. The number one is this. Please do not act as if we are dealing with a slightly faulty, benign, uh, bad leader in Pharaoh. This is the worst possible leader. By this culture standards, remember, this man has participated, first of all, in the enslavement of a people group based purely on their ethnicity. He's the worst of racists. Uh, He's engaged in a systematic injustice of oppression by making their working conditions intolerable, just on the basis of his mere cruelty. And, and then thirdly, as if that wasn't enough, he's engineered an infanticide uh, of the Hebrew children. This is the first ethnic cleansing going on. So no, Pharaoh is not benign. He, he's been hardening his own heart, but it just mean, it means that he's not just evil. He's become monstrously evil. He, even his own advisors, by the time he gets to the end of it, think that he's lost it. So the question comes, how should God deal with this particular extreme of evil? Or better yet, how would we respond today to just such a tyrant? Look, my submission this morning is is that we see what's happening, is that God is luring evil into its own destruction. In other words, God's hardening Pharaoh's heart is his way of pushing his evil actions to the very edges of shock and awe, so that it destroys itself. And look, if you if you become a student of your Bible, this is classic God, um, the more you're going to find that when God deals with evil people, he doesn't always do what we kind of wish he'd do, it's like a precision strike, you know, zap them. What he does rather is, is he allows the snares that the evil lay to reverse themselves and trap the very people who laid them. Let me give you an example in Psalm 35, where King David is praying as he often does about his enemies. Listen to verse 7 and 8. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, listen, and let the net that he hid ensnare him and let him fall into it, his destruction. Absolutely classic. In other words, the judgment God gives for evil is oftentimes more evil. It's as if he says, fine, that's the direction you want to go. I'm just going to make the way wider for you. But my sovereignty over it is going to guarantee the destruction of that evil and you in the process. I actually find this kind of an emotionally satisfying answer because quite frankly, God does this in an effort almost to honor the choices of his creatures, even when they persist in their own destruction, which is kind of terrifying to think about if you really do. That brings me to the second thought, because I think for some of you out there, you're smart enough to say, "Mm, nope, I still don't like it. That still doesn't answer the question. You're still wrestling with, I just don't like to think about a God who would have this kind of retribution at his hands. And honestly, I spent 25 years talking to the next generation about their struggles with passages like this. And I thought about this question a lot. And I think I'm ready to give you an answer. You ready? I have no idea. I have no idea. Look, here's the deal. As preachers, oftentimes you get to a certain passage and you have this temptation to think, okay, how am I going to spend this? But when you stick with the Bible, it keeps you from being able to do that. Because the Bible is going to show you a God who honestly is sometimes going to do stuff that you don't like and stuff that you don't understand. And we have to accept the fact that I can't always get an answer to, his, to, the, to why he does things the way that he does. And I know we don't like to think about God that way, but don't you realize that if we say that, you've just got a Play-Doh God, one that you've kind of fashioned and formed into something that's nothing more than a projection of your own imagination. And I realize it's, it feels comforting to us to kind of get God out of the way of evil. But have, will that God ever be able to comfort you is the question. I honestly don't think there's any real answer for Plotz's question than the fact that this God just can't be boxed in by you. We don't have a tame God. But would you have it any other way? <laughs> How does it satisf- satisfy us to think that there's a God out there made in my image, one that I can comprehend, one that agrees with me all the time, and one that never crosses my will? <laughs> you're, you're not in a relationship with a real person until so that person can kind of surprise you sometimes. That real people are like, something that you don't really get. Look, I think if we take both of these facts presented to us as the Bible gives us, then we are shaken into sobriety, and that really is the point. You know, on the one hand, it means that there's a very complicated relationship with my continual refusal to get humble about what God would have me to do and with the way that God is making the path wide for me to let me experience the effects of that. It's complicated. So is it man's responsibility or is it God's sovereignty? Yes! And it's difficult. I think that's likely what we're supposed to take away from this passage. So, we see sovereignty for God, we see hardening for Pharaoh, but then we see an exorcism for Israel. God clearly states in chapter 9, verse 16, that these plagues, they're not just about sort of showing Pharaoh up. They're about sort of showing Israel just what his power is about. I need you to see what my power is about. And all that power is being wielded, Uh, suggests a guy named Eugene Peterson to purge Israel of the 400 years of slavery and the effects that that has to have had on them. Absolutely. Look, for the Jews, uh, this absolute and ruthless power of the Egyptians, that was the only game in town. It was the only life any of them ever knew. Like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... Those are distant memories, if they remembered them at all. How is Moses not only going to free these people from their chains, but also from the intellectual, the psychological, even the material effects that living that long in Egypt have inflicted on them? How do you get them out of that? How would they go about going to their new country and not reproducing the Egyptian way in their own new country? That's the question so that they don't end up oppressing weaker people as well. Which, by the way, is what happens. The generation that lives underneath oppression turns around and becomes oppressors themselves. Happens in families, happens in nation states. Look, you can see this working out, I think, in the pattern of the plagues. There's a commentator by the name of A.W. Pink who suggests that the, 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 the first nine plagues lay out in sort of common themes. The last one will actually deal with by itself next week. But he says the first three plagues deal with the comforts of the, uh, of the, of the Egyptians. You know, he deprives them of water to drink and wash in. Secondly, invades their homes with frogs. And finally, they have lice that attacks their persons. Um, you know, the second set of three, sort of God lays his hands on their possessions, right? Uh, for the first time, they've got flies that corrupt their land that they own, that destroys their cattle in that next one. And then in, the, in number six, it goes after their persons again by taking away their health with the boils that they broke out in, these terrible sores. The last three, Pink says, deal with desolation and death. You know, more plainly kind of evidencing God's direct hand. You know, The hail comes down and destroys all of the plants and the cattle. Then next you get the locusts that come and consume all the vegetation that wasn't destroyed by the hail. And finally, in number nine, you get darkness that gets sunk into the entire countryside because of God's wrath. And what I find interesting about those three is those are honestly the three things that will shake anybody, won't they? Your comforts, your possession, and the idea of death. Think about that for a second. You know, you, what happens when your comforts and your, your health are kind of removed? I didn't, I didn't talk about it much, but there was a couple of uh, years ago, 10-some-odd years ago, when I went to the doctor with a fever that wouldn't go away. And at one point the doctor was like, you know, if this thing doesn't go away in the next week or so, I, I want to do a scan of you and, and we'd get some tests and blah, blah, blah. I was like, blah, 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 blah. Why do you want to do a scan? He goes, well, some of the symptoms that you have might be example of tumor fever. And I was like, <clears throat> okay, hold on. Tumor fever? What are you talking about? And he was the one who used the word cancer. Some of you have faced that. I think you'll know what it was like for me for about the next week and a half while I lived under that sort of idea. Oxford looked completely different. My family didn't look the same at all. My thought life was completely reorienting. Why? Because once you sort of deal with people's comforts and strip those things away, you begin to find a lot of the world looks a whole lot differently, does it not? You know, secondly, when your possessions get threatened, it'll reveal your idols as well. I thought about what happened, you know, what, 14 some odd years ago when Katrina came and decimated New Orleans. And we all watched and we condescended a little bit, didn't we? When we saw that city just devolve into absolute chaos and thought to ourselves, oh my goodness, look, people in New Orleans are crazy. But do you really want to put yourself up against if you had all of your water, all of your electricity, your homes destroyed, that you would do any better? But then, of course, when the specter of death hangs over you, it changes things as well. Um, you may not remember this, but from 2003 to 2007, I think it was, that four year period at Old Miss, while I was a campus minister there, saw to 35 students dying, which was like 10 times as many students as somehow regularly pass away during a four year period. It was a culture of death. My wife and I would get it every semester and be like, well, I wonder what's going to happen this semester. And I'm telling you, it changed the specter of that campus. It was a different place in the complexion of what was going on there. Why? Because when these things come in, they have a way of shaking people down to their very foundations and asking them why they had the allegiances they had in the first place. And my simple point this morning is, this is basic Christian activity. It's what we do. There's an ancient epistle to Hippolytus that tells us that whenever someone converted to Christianity in the first couple centuries, they were required to enter into this probationary period, sometimes lasting for like two years, where they were trained in what it meant to follow Jesus. Why? Because they wouldn't even let them take the Lord's Supper without going through and realizing how much their time in the gutters and their time in the the brothels and the streets and the schools had completely colored their imaginations with things that God needed to purge and not understanding what it means to have Jesus as Lord. Look, it's worth a Christian, it is a Christian task to ask the question, how am I living with the Egyptian way? Am I living in that life? Look, so what does this mean? Well, what it means is, is that the effects of slavery for the people of God, it goes so much deeper than we oftentimes realize. Otherwise, we'd have had our problems worked out by now. So the question for us as, as, as an embodiment of the people of God is what plan do you have in place in your life to begin to work through that? What is going on in your life to tend to your own exorcism? to the purging of these these things that infect our hearts and therefore our marriages and therefore our families. Oftentimes, it's amazing. Maybe I might think to myself, I should go maybe talk to somebody about this. I don't know whether it's generational, but I find it fascinating how often when you suggest to someone that, I don't know, maybe maybe you should go see a counselor about this. Someone's like, whoa, (laughs) I mean, I, I don't have problems now truth of the matter is, is, sometimes in the past process of dealing with these things, we got to go have a plan, or we might speak to somebody. You know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children, you know, sit down with the, with the Beaver family to hear about Aslan, and they're shocked to find out that this Aslan, the Lord of Narnia, is a lion. So that one of the children looks up and says, well, a lion? Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? <laughs> Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. Look, here's the deal. <laughs> this, God of, this God of the plagues is not safe. But my question in finishing this morning is, how can that God be sa- not safe, but also good, the way that Lewis is saying through the mouth of Mr. Beaver? <laughs> I think the answer is simply this, that Jesus comes years later, and you know what he spends a lot of his time doing? Miracles. I had one commentator said, the miracles were unplagues. They were plague reversals. He was coming in to undo the havoc that sin had caused. And he made a point to show that he had utter control over what we call the natural world. Which is why it's significant that when Jesus died, the whole countryside was, was plunged into darkness. What's he doing? Jesus is absorbing not just 10 plagues, but the ultimate plague of his father's wrath. Why? So that you and I could face the little plagues. Because, because we don't have to face the ultimate plague of God's justice, I can come and deal with the fact that he's not safe. That there are times, like with the apostle Peter, where he looks at him. I was reading this this week. He looks at Peter, and he's kind of like, Peter, when you were young, you went to places where you went. But there's going to come a time where I take you by the hand and take you to places you don't want to go. Where does Peter find the courage to all of a sudden become a preacher, like days after that conversation? It comes from the Holy Spirit coming and convincing him that the ultimate verdict was already paid. The big capital P plague was absorbed and neutralized. And because it was, I can march out and deal with this unsafe God. Hmm. Do you have that hope? (laughs) Is that something that describes you? Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, if it does not, then our only hope for surviving the story of the plagues is to cling to you. And we came here this morning for just that. So we ask you this morning that you would meet us in this place, that we would learn, that we would see, perhaps even in the singing of a song, that indeed you are the one who is the Lord's anointed and that we stand and we bow our knee to you. And we do that even this morning. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name.